Thank you for joining us today at Our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in seven different locations. We hope that today's message encourages and empowers you on your spiritual journey and helps you grow deeper in your relationship with God. To learn more about Our Savior's Church and how you can get involved, you can visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. We're taking a, a look at the, the life of Jesus. We've been in a series called Who is Jesus? And we've looked at everything from Jesus being the Lamb of God, Jesus being the Rabbi, Jesus being Lord, Jesus being King. And so we've, we've camped out at Jesus the Teacher. This is now the ninth part of this sermon, and we have one more week, and I think we'll be done. I think we'll be done. But we're camping out at this because it's the longest recorded sermon that we have of Jesus in the Bible. It spans three chapters of the New Testament, three chapters in the book of Matthew. If you have a red letter edition, it's all red for three chapters. It's Jesus teaching us. There was a crowd there, but like we talked about in the beginning of this, this, this message, there was a, a crowd, but Jesus was teaching his disciples in front of the crowd. He wasn't teaching the crowd. He was teaching his people, and when he was teaching his people, he was teaching us how the people of the kingdom are to live. What are the expectations of heaven on us as this new people, this new creation planted in the earth to be what we just prayed, the light of the world, a city set on a hill that can't be hidden? How are we supposed to live? Now, in doing it, he was also clarifying things that the Jews, the Jewish people had gotten wrong about the law and poor examples that were made by the teachers of that law. And I want to jump right to this because we're in chapter 7, but I want to rewind back to chapter 5 because there's a very important part of this sermon, a hinge point, if you will, that a lot of this sermon was based on exemplifying or illustrating, if you will. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 says this. It says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose or to fulfill their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, don't miss this. But I warn you. It's a very important thing for Jesus to say, and it's important for us to hear it if he says it. He says, but I warn you. Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And for the hearers, as has been said over the last couple of weeks, as has been said, as the hearers of this message are hearing that, they're thinking, are you kidding me? Then who can be saved? Who can go to heaven? These people dedicated their lives to studying this, the Torah, understanding the, the Old Testament law. Like they, they commit, they sat around all day talking about it. How in the world could I be better than them? How in the world could I be more righteous? But then as Jesus continues teaching, they start to see it. They start to understand that what he was saying was, I don't just want you to have outward actions that look right. I want you to obey God from your hearts. I want the inside of the cup to be clean, not just the outside of the cup. Jesus called those religious leaders something along the lines of a whitewashed tombstone. You know what that means? It means it's like those, those pretty mausoleums that you go to. They're beautiful on the outside. When you see a brand new mausoleum, there's beautiful architecture or the stone design or whatever. But what's it full of? Dead bones. It's gross on the inside. And Jesus was saying, that's what your religious leaders are like. Outwardly, they look great, but inwardly, they're wicked. And Jesus is saying, for my people, that is not how they are going to live. I want their righteousness to come from their heart. I want their obedience to God to come from who they are, new creations in Christ. New creations created in God's image. You're tracking with me. 
He teaches us for people. That's great. The rest of y'all just try to track with me. Jesus talks about our giving, right? He started talking about things that we do that look good, but our hearts are wicked when we do them, like giving for everybody to see. And he exposes that. He talks about our prayer lives, how we pray for everybody to think we're spiritual. And he exposes how we're really supposed to pray. He talks about our fasting. He talks about our wealth. He talks about our trusting in our own, our own wealth and our own finances and, and hoping that that's enough. And he says, no, put your treasures in heaven where your treasures should be. Put your attention and your focus. And again, he wasn't saying don't have a savings account. When you interpret the Bible, you have to interpret Scripture in light of other Scriptures, meaning they all work together. He teaches, he teaches us to put our treasure there. He wasn't saying don't save because the Bible also says that the righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. So it's both at play. But the question was, where is your heart? Where is your heart? And as he talks about our heart, he goes on, he seemingly makes a shift to talk about something that is very misunderstood by so many people. And I hope to shed some light on it this morning. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, this is what it says. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever heard that scripture quoted to you by somebody that thought you were judging them? There's got to be more hands up in this room. <laughs> Let me tell you, some, some, there are people who are lost, who are far away from God, who don't know much about the Bible at all, but they will quote this one to you. Yeah. Doesn't your Bible, doesn't your Jesus tell you, judge not lest you be judged? How many of you, your kids quote that to you? So I want to help you understand what he is saying and what he means, because he means what he says. But I want you to understand what he's, the whole picture of what he's saying. Again, we interpret scripture in light of other scripture. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. So pastor, what is this saying? Let me tell you what is not saying. And this is often what some, of, some people who hear this or misquote it think. They think, see, we're not supposed to have conflicts with other people because we're not supposed to judge them, right? We're not supposed to call people out. It's not our place to judge anybody at all. Jesus said that. So your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Let me help you. There is the truth and everything else is a lie. Yeah. So if your truth does not line up with your truth, your truth is not the truth. Your truth is a lie. You just happen to believe it's the truth. There's the truth, and then there's not the truth. There's no such thing as my truth, and what's true for me is not true for you. No, no, no. If, that, if, the, seal, if the lights are on, the lights are on, whether you think they're on or not. There's the truth. So Jesus is not saying that we don't have the ability to make any judgment whatsoever or make any kind of assessment or evaluation. Because truth be told, in this very same sermon, now remember this, this has been nine weeks for us talking about this sermon. Jesus taught all of these things in one sitting at one time. So they all under, they understood what he was teaching in context because he just said the, the context for it five minutes ago, which for us might have been five weeks ago. So they got what he was saying. Jesus, in that same sermon, two different times tells us something along the lines of making a judgment, evaluation, or an assessment of someone else. He tells you to do that. The same Jesus who said this also tells us to judge by the fruit on someone's tree. That a good fruit doesn't produce, a good tree, excuse me, doesn't produce bad fruit. He teaches us this. So if that's what he's saying, he's not saying that you are never to make any kind of judgment whatsoever. No, no, no. We call right, right. We call wrong, wrong. We call good, good. We call sin, sin. 
That's not, in a, that's not a judgment. That's you agreeing with the judgment that God's already made. If God calls something sin, guess what? It's sin. And if you say it's not sin, you're the one making a judgment call. Let's keep going. So what is he saying? Remember the context. When I say context, remember the situation in which this is playing itself out. Remember who he's talking to. Remember the time frame in which he's saying this. Jesus had literally just finished listing a bunch of things that those people, those hearers, likely never thought that was wrong that they were doing. Jesus was sitting, he was talking to a group of people who probably thought, yeah, adultery, I've never done that. I'm not like those wicked, evil adulterers. And Jesus says, you do realize that if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed the act of adultery in your heart. Why? He was exposing their heart. He's talking to a group of people that would sit back and go, murder is evil, is wicked, is wrong. And he tells them, if you are angry at someone without just cause, you've already, it's as if you've already committed the act of murder in your heart. And they're learning from this going, oh, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize you actually wanted me to like feel this, to actually love you with my heart. I thought you just wanted me to love you with my actions. So remember, that's who he's talking to as he says this. It's a group of people, the religious leaders of that day, they judged everybody. They just walked around judging evil, wrong, wicked, unclean. Stay away from them. Y'all don't go here. That's evil. Sounded a whole lot like a whole lot of the Instagram preachers y'all love. That's what they did. That's wrong, and you're wrong, and you're going to hell, and you're this. And Jesus comes along, and this is the people he's talking about. He's saying, you don't have the right to go and make those judgments. Because the same judgment that you judge by, be careful, you will be judged by that same judgment. Now contrast the person like the religious leaders of that day with someone who, who Jesus spent his time with. Sinners tax collectors, unrighteous people. Jesus knew that they got something that a lot of, that the religious leaders didn't get, that they needed him. That they had nothing of worth to give to him. Jesus began this whole sermon by saying this very powerful statement, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy, blessed, fulfilled are those who realize their absolute depravity and need for me. That's what Jesus is saying, their need for me. Those who recognize that I have nothing of worth to give to God, and the only reason I'm in the kingdom is because I realize I need him and I need the kingdom. So this is not a whole new teaching. This is very much in line with everything that he's been teaching. Blessed is the person that knows that they need mercy. And because they know that they need mercy, they give mercy. They give what they themselves have needed. It was said in that day that rabbis taught that God had two measures of judgment. Two measures in which he would judge by. He would judge by the the measure of justice and he would judge by the measure of mercy. Let me ask you, which one would you want God to judge you by? Three people under their breath. I'll tell you, I I would want him to judge me by the measure of mercy. I need him to judge me by the measure of mercy. And if we all need him to judge us by the measure of mercy, why is it we judge everyone else by the measure of justice? Why do we judge people in a manner that we don't want Jesus to judge us? That's what he's teaching. That's what he's helping us see. There's a book that I've been, I've been reading called the, well, I won't, the title of it is The Sermon on the Mount, but it's by Jonathan, Jonathan Pennington, Pennington. And he taught something that I thought was very interesting about this very same verse. 
He said, this is probably a truer translation of what Jesus was, the essence of what Jesus was saying when he said that. Because we know clearly from the Bible, there's other places he tells us to make judgments. So when he says this, there's got to be more to what he's saying. So this is what Jonathan Pendleton wrote. He said, do not judge unfairly. Do not judge unfairly, lest you be judged the same way. For by the kind of judgment with which you judge others, you will be judged. And with whatever measure you measure to others, it will also be measured to you. We make a lot of unfair judgments on people, don't we? There's a biblical scholar named Donald Hagner. He said this, one should not judge others more harshly or by a different standard than one judges oneself. We are really good at doing that. We are really good at judging other people by a different standard than we judge ourselves. Now, why do we do that? Few reasons, and really a number of reasons, but I only talk about two. Sometimes it just makes us look more righteous when we judge other people. It makes us look like we're better whenever we look down on other people for their faults and their flaws. And I can remember I got saved when I was 16 years old. I was born again in that moment. And I was in churches where they were just mean. Like the church people were just mean. Like, and I thought that was holiness. I thought like you were holy if you could really look down and tell everybody else what was wrong with their life. And that was my picture. And I joked about this in the first service, but like our ushers, how many of y'all love and appreciate our ushers that serve every Sunday? Isn't that amazing? And they stand back there with their nice little polos on and, and they look all sharp and everything and they greet you and love you, which on a side note, can I just tell you, it's not just the job of the greeters and the ushers to make people feel welcomed in our church. It's our church, so it's all of our job. It's all of our role. You don't have to clap, but it's true. When somebody comes into the door, you have a part in making them feel like this is a safe place for them. You have a part in making them feel like Jesus is welcoming them home. And when you stand back and look at them like this, judging them, you're doing the very opposite of what he wants. I remember this. When I became, first became the lead pastor of this church, and I remember my first Sunday, and I like the reins are mine. So I'm sitting back there, and I'm like, God, thank you. This is awesome. I'm scared to death. Please don't let me mess this up. And I can remember seeing a new, new couple, a new family, excuse me, walk in, and I knew they were new because they went to sit right in the back, and that's what new people do. They go sit in the back, and they're hoping, like, if the snakes come out, I got a quick beeline to get out of here. Right? And so they go, and they're trying to sit, and there was a person, there was a lady sitting in the back, and she just looked so put off that she had to get out of her seat to let this, oh. And I remember in that moment thinking to myself, this is not the type of church that we will be. If someone, I don't care if they don't look right, smell right, aren't dressed right, I don't care if they were in the club till six o'clock in the morning, they will be welcome when they come into these doors. Because that's what Jesus wants. And guess what? You have a part to play in that. If someone walks in and you're uncomfortable, like, I don't know if I should say something to them, that is your sign to go talk to them and tell them, I am so glad that you're here. But going back to the type of churches that I was in, like our ushers, again, they have that nice little polos and they look all sharp and they're masculine and manly and what well, can I show you a seat, all this stuff. <laughs> and my churches, the ushers, the ushers were ladies and they were mean as rattlesnakes. <laughs> And you, have you ever seen the, like those little white paper doilies that you use like to put your, your cups on? They wore those on their head. <laughs> and they were standing, they had their little white gloves, and they would stand there on the back row and judge every single one of you that walked through the door. Some of you are laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, just mean face. And you know when they, they give you the up and down look? 
And I can remember when I was just really beginning to, to travel and preach and do those things. I was young. I was cool. My kids don't believe that, but I was. I had dreadlocks. I had all, like, there would be no pictures shown on the... And I went to this one church that I was traveling to, to speak to, and one of those ushers didn't know who I was or why I was there, just saw a young punk with dreadlocks walk into her church, and she stands there, and she was mean to me. I mean, she just was rude and just had the look, just the stink face, like the face like you smell something nasty, just... And gave me that whole vibe. This is what I thought was holiness when I first got saved. And then I walked right up to the front, greeted the pastor, and then began to preach. And when I came back, her whole attitude was different, Miss Lynn. <laughs> Praise God, brother. That was an amazing word. Great job. God's going to use you. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> Hold that. <laughs> Your heart has been exposed. Hold that. And that's what we think sometimes is righteousness and is not Jesus' righteousness. That's not the way Jesus was. The people that Jesus was like that with were the religious leaders that were doing it to everyone else. Another reason why we do that, it makes us feel just a little bit better about ourselves. When we can cast judgment on somebody else for a moment, it allows us to take the attention off of us and put the negative attention on others. Let's talk about ways that we do that. Another way that we do that is we judge people's motivations and their intentions. Let me teach you something about Jesus that some of you need to know. You're not him. You're not him. We're called to be like him. We're striving to be like him. I want to be just like him. I'm not him, and neither are you. And when he was here, he had the ability to know everybody's intentions. He knew their thoughts. He knew the motivation of their heart. And he came exposing those things. You're not him. You don't know people's motivations and intentions. I was, I'm going to expose the darkness of my heart. I was with my wife literally yesterday. And we're driving down the road, and I confessed to her what I think. Now, I grew up thinking this way, hearing this kind of stuff, and it stuck with me. Even to this day, I'm being sanctified, Pastor Paul. <laughs> when I am in a turning lane, and somebody is a car in front of me or a couple cars, and they are supposed to turn, and they don't turn, my knee-jerk reaction is to think they are intentionally trying to cause a wreck. I literally think, mm-hmm, insurance, you're trying to get insurance money. <laughs> you're laughing because you thought the same thing. I take it personal when people do that, and they're like, why aren't they turning? They're, turn, they're trying to get me in the wreck. Like, like they know, Gabe Smith is three cars behind, <laughs> and if I delay five seconds, he's gonna, okay, great, ruined his day, let me move on. I don't know people's heart, and as foolish as that sounds, that's what we do to people when we judge their motivations and their intentions. We don't know what's in their heart. And when we think and act like we do, we're doing the very thing Jesus told us not to do. Another way that we do this, another way that we do this is even within our marriages, we judge ourselves by our actions and we judge everybody else Excuse me, we judge them by their actions and we judge ourselves by our intentions. This is what I mean by that. It comes up in almost every marriage counseling that I do. I see the problem so clearly. She's doing this, Pastor. She does this. She does this. And she says, yeah, but you did that. And he goes, well, that's not what I meant. That's not my intention. You're not giving her that grace. You're giving yourself that grace that you meant good when you did what was wrong, but you're judging her solely by what she did. Why? Because it's so easy for us to judge others by what we see them do, and we judge ourselves. I had noble intentions for getting angry and punching that hole in the wall. That's the same thing Jesus is talking about. Or 
Here's, here's yet another one. When we call people by their sins instead of by their name. That's Joe the drunk. That's the use a phrase I've heard my pastor say before. That's nasty Nikki. And we judge people by the worst mistakes that they've made, hoping and grateful that God has never done that to us. That we give the justice measure, but we expect the mercy measure. And that's what Jesus is exposing. I'm not saying you don't call sin, sin. Sin is sin, and he's a righteous judge, and we warn people, but we warn people in love, knowing we are not the ultimate judge. He is. He is. We don't have the final say. And listen, I'm not a pastor that's going to back down from calling sin, sin. We're going to preach against sin. We're going to preach repentance. But make no mistake about it, I am not the final judge. I will align myself with the judgments he has already made, and I will call sin the things he's called sin. I have no right to call something sin that he hasn't called sin. I have no right to condemn someone that he hasn't. We do what the Pharisees did. We act as if we have the right to disregard people, to push people aside. Remember where you were when Jesus found you. I was dark, I was twisted, I was angry, I was hurt, I was confused. I was all of those things. Thank God he found me, he rescued me. What makes us think that we have the right to condemn someone before they have the opportunity to experience that same grace that we were given? Jesus goes on to further illustrate this in verse 3. And I love this. This is the master teacher. Jesus is the master teacher. You'll see this almost pattern in the sermon where Jesus makes a point, makes a a declarative statement, and then he illustrates it, and he gives another illustration. So it's like point, illustration, greater application and illustration. So he's made the point, but now he illustrates it. He says this, and why worry about a speck in your friend's eyes when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eyes. Now, this is something that I I think is very interesting, and I think it was intentional when Jesus did it. I think there was a point within the point that he was making. A speck and a log are made of the same substance. They're made of the same thing. And I believe, I believe, it's as if Jesus was saying, you have a giant log of wood in your eye, and the reason you can recognize the speck of wood in your own eyes because all the, the only difference between theirs and yours is yours is bigger. So I, I, can, I can notice the sin in your life because I have it in my own. I have it in greater measure in mine, but when I see it in you, I'm going to condemn it. I'm going to judge it. We often judge people who do the exact same things that we do because it makes us feel better when we cast judgment on them rather than evaluating our own lives. Isn't it true, even within your parenting, can I just go there for a minute? What do you normally hate the most about what your kids do? It's the stuff you do. And you see it in them, so you pounce on it, but then you do the exact same thing. I don't want my kids to hear y'all step outside, just erase that part from your memory. But it's the truth. Chuck Smith, who I love, Pastor Chuck Smith from Calvary Chapel, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, but he said something along the lines of, our sins look horrible when someone else is doing them. Our, Our sins look horrible when somebody else is doing them. See, the Bible, the Bible tells us a very interesting story. 
in the Old Testament that very much is aligned with this point. King David, the great king of Israel, was one day a prophet came to see him, and the prophet's name was Nathan. He began to tell David a story at a very critical time in David's life. And he begins to tell David the story of a rich man who had a lot of livestock. This guy had many animals, many things, was a wealthy, wealthy man. And a friend of his was coming to have dinner with him. And so instead of the the wealthy man killing one of his animals, he sent for the lamb of a poor man who lived near him. And this poor man only had one lamb. And the prophet illustrates the story by saying the man treated the lamb like it was his own child. He raised the lamb with his children. The lamb slept in their homes, slept in their bedrooms, ate from their table. It was like one of the man's kids. He loved the lamb dearly. And instead of that wealthy man killing one of the many lambs that he had, he took the poor man's lamb and had it slain to feed his guest. And when King David heard that story, he was so full of anger and so full of rage and justice that he said, that man or anybody who does something like that should be put to death. And the prophet looked at him and he said, David, you are that man. And he reminded, or he didn't remind him, he told him, he exposed what was exposed by the Holy Spirit, that David had taken the wife of one of his soldiers, a man by the name of Uriah. He took a woman named Bathsheba. Many of you know the story. And he slept with Bathsheba. And to cover his sin, he had Uriah killed, put to death by the sword of the Ammonites. And in that moment, when David heard the story, he wanted justice. But when he realized he was the man, he wanted mercy. It's really easy for us to cast the judgment on others when what we need is mercy and grace and forgiveness. Again, church, please don't hear what I'm not saying. We take righteous stands. We stand for what is right. We speak truth to our culture. We are the light of the world, but we are not a people who are there casting stones at them. We're there exposing the darkness and trying to bring them to the truth. That is who we are. At the end of the day, we are no one's final judge. Can I just tell you something that might be slightly disturbing to you? You don't have to say yes. I'm going to say it anyway. There will probably be people in heaven that you don't think should be there. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure there will be people in heaven that you don't think should be there. And there will not be people in heaven that you were sure were going to be. Because he is the righteous judge who knows all things. And on that day, it will all be exposed. So we trust in his judgment. But then Jesus brings some balance to the things that he's teaching. Just so you know that we're not, he's not just saying you never, ever, 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 ever make an assessment or a judgment. Never, ever, ever. Just it's not your place. Don't do it. He goes on to say this in the very next verse. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. It takes some level of judgment and assessment to say that someone is not worth giving what you're giving them. It takes some level of judgment to call someone a pig. That doesn't give you license to go and call your husband a pig, by the way. What's Jesus saying? There's a level of judgment that we are supposed to make. There's a level of assessment that we are supposed to make. And just for a side note, when Jesus, Jesus calls people dogs and pigs, when he's, he's, he's not talking about dogs like we think. Dogs in our day and time, I see some of you carrying your dog around River Ranch with a sweater on. And you're like giving it some tea or sipping. Like that's not what people did with dogs back then. Dogs were scavengers. They were mangy. They were dirty. I have a dog. I'm not saying my dog is all of those things, although I don't like my dog. But nonetheless, (laughs) I don't. I have it because of those three people. 
Dogs were nasty. They were scavengers. So it wasn't a compliment when Jesus was saying someone was a dog or a pig. It wasn't like the nice, nice little pot-bellied pigs that we have. Pigs were despicable in that day, and you could not even, you, you couldn't eat a pig. That was unclean and unholy. So when Jesus is saying this, he's telling that there are judgments and assessments that you make. There are judgments and assessments that we make. If you try to, if a young man tries to date my daughter, you better believe he's getting assessed. There will be judgments made. I'm not the final judge, but I'm second to the final judge when it comes to them. So who was Jesus talking about, though? As he's talking about this, bringing this balance in these things, and I'll tell you this. It's my belief that the dogs, the pigs that Jesus was talking about were the religious leaders of that day. Because they were the ones who were hearing the kingdom, hearing the greatest words ever spoken by the greatest man to ever live, and they were adamantly opposing and pushing back and teaching God's people that it wasn't true and it wasn't right. And Jesus is telling us as his followers, don't waste your time with those people because they won't believe. They won't. Now, here's the thing. I've gone to hospitals and prayed with people who have OD'd, who've lied to my face and didn't really want what I had to give. I've gone to prisons and sat in there and pleaded with people to get right with God and has gone in one ear and out the other. And even those people, Jesus still wants me to try with them. He still wants me to contend with them. But what's worse than that is someone who believes that they're absolutely right with God and they're not. Those who believe, they're so full of self-righteousness that they can't see their own need for him. Those were the ones Jesus was saying, don't waste your time. Don't argue with a self-righteous man. Don't argue with someone who believes that they're right all the time. You're simply casting your pearls before swine. Let's keep going. Verse 7. So, Pastor, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to judge? This seems like Jesus is getting ready to teach something completely new, but he's not. Bear with me. Verse 7. He says, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Can I tell you what's so important about this? A couple things. Number one. This was given as a charge to not just ask, seek, and knock, but to keep asking, to keep seeking, and to keep knocking. It's a lifestyle that's developed on being dependent on him. You keep asking for what you need. You keep seeking for what you keep knocking. God, I don't know if I can do the right thing. Keep asking. God, I don't know how to judge and assess this situation. You seek heaven and you keep seeking it. God, how am I supposed to enter? I need this. God, what am I supposed to You keep knocking, and you trust that your Father loves you and wants the best for you. This is the promise of heaven. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not, meaning he won't correct you for asking for wisdom. He wants you to ask him for wisdom. So keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking. Why? He's giving us an example of the father here. He goes on to say this, you parents, if your children ask you for a loaf of bread, as long as they're not gluten-free, <laughs> do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him. Jesus wasn't condemning you by saying sinful people. It's the truth. Our nature's sinful. God's nature is perfect. And if us and our sinful nature still want good for our kids, how much more does our perfect Father in heaven want good for us? What you believe about God determines what, 
what and how you ask him for things. If you believe he's a good father who wants good for you, you ask him. You seek him. You knock. But if you believe he's up there just simply judging you, you don't seek him. You don't ask. You don't knock because you just think he's waiting to condemn you or waiting for you to do something wrong. And the picture he's giving us is of the just father. And he's telling us, be like that. Be like the righteous, just father who gives good gifts to his kids. How do I know that? He goes on to say this. Verse 12, and I'm closing. He sums all of this up. Remember where we started. In Matthew chapter 5, when he teaches us, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. Your righteousness needs to be greater than that of the Pharisees who do the actions and do the things, but inwardly their hearts are wicked and they're walking around judging and casting judgment and hurting people. Jesus comes as a true shepherd and exposes the false shepherds. And he says this to us, follow God's example and do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. And then he says, this is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. In other words, the heart of everything we've just talked about, the heart of the Old Testament, the heart of it, the essence of it. I've, taught, I've exposed your heart. Now here is the heart of the law. Do to others what you would like them to do to you. And there are some who would say, Pastor, that idea is not original to Jesus. I mean, that's why I'm not sure I believe in Christianity because, I mean, Confucius said something similar. Something similar was written in the Talmud, the Jewish writings. Something was said by the Stoic philosophers. I think it was um, Socrates. They said something similar. Similar, yes. Their sentiment was more along the lines of, if you don't want evil done to you, don't do evil to other people. That was their... That was their teaching. It's a good teaching. That's a good thing. Jesus took it a step further and made it something positive. And he said, do good to others the same way you want good done to you. It wasn't just don't do bad. It was do to others what you want done to you. Do the good. Take the extra step. Go the extra mile. Bless those who curse you. Didn't he say that in the sermon? Be merciful to those who have hurt you so that your Father in heaven will hear your prayers. All of this is combined. This is the heart. This is the essence. Do good to those. Even those who do you wrong. So what does that have to do with judgment? Judge others the way you want to be judged. Judge fairly the way that you hope to be judged fairly. Judge mercifully the way that you expect to be judged, mercifully. Because God has a way, and I, I, I don't understand it, I can't fully get into it, but he said it, so I believe it to be true. If you judge a certain way, God himself will judge you that way. Remember that. If you judge with the judgment of justice, expect that judgment to be given back to you. But if you judge with the judgment of mercy, expect that to be given back. This is the essence of the law. Doesn't mean we don't call wrong wrong. Doesn't mean we don't call sin sin. We very much do. But we do it in love in hopes that God will give mercy to people, not justice and judgment. Let me pray for you. Lord, help us with this. It's our, in our nature, our sinful nature, God, to want mercy for ourselves, but to want justice for others. Help us to be forgiving. Help us to be gracious. Help us to be loving. I'm not talking about, Lord, helping us be tolerant. That's not what you were after. But you were after mercy. And help us to love the unlovable. Help us to love those, God, who, who for years maybe we've cursed 
And I pray you would give us opportunities even this week to share love with those you love. Those who maybe we've had problems with, help us to give mercy instead of judgment. Help us when our assessments and in our assessments to judge fairly and rightly, righteously and mercifully so that we can follow the example, Jesus, of you and of our Father in heaven. We love you. With every eye closed and every head bowed, there is a judgment that we will stand before God one day and face. And my hope is that every one of us faces that judgment with the mercy seat, given mercy. But let me tell you how that mercy is given is given by what Jesus did on the cross for you and for your sins. Is given when you are what the Bible calls born again. Jesus said in the book of John that you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're first born again. That's the beginning of it. It starts when you become a new creation. Pastor, how do I do that? It's as simple as ABC. A, you admit. Admit the truth that you're a sinner, that you're far away from him, that the sins you've committed in your life weren't just mistakes or an accident or a thing that happened. It was a sin that you committed against the holy, just, and righteous God. But then you be, you believe that in his great love and his great compassion and his great mercy, he sent his son Jesus to die for every single one of those sins so that you could be made right and stand righteous in his sight. When he died on that cross, it was for those sins. And then see, you confess. You confess what? That he is now the Lord of your life. He is king. And that you're going to follow his path and live life the way he wants you to live it. That you begin the process of being a follower of Jesus. So if you say, Pastor Gabe, that's me, I want to lead you in a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer of getting right with him, and it's a commitment of following that from this moment on, I'm praying this prayer to begin my journey of following Jesus. If you say, that's me, on the count of three, I want you to lift up your hand because I want to acknowledge, I want to know who I'm praying with. And then all of us are going to pray this prayer out loud. One, two, three. If that's you, with no one looking around, lift your hand up. Lift it up high. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. This is your moment. Thank you. Thank you. I see your hand. I see your hands back there, young lady. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Lift it up high. Don't be ashamed. Thank you, sir. I see your hand back there. Now, if you lifted your hand, I want you to look up at me. Nobody else. Look up at me because I want you to remember this moment in time. This is the day that everything changes. This is the day you begin your journey of following him. You can close your eyes. Now, church, let's pray this prayer aloud, all of us together. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. I believe on the cross you died for my sin, for my guilt, for my shame. I believe you faced hell so I will not have to go there. And you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven, purpose on earth, and a relationship with God the Father. I repent of my sin. I turn away from it. And I choose to follow you. I receive your mercy. And from this moment on, God be my Father. Jesus, you're my Lord and the Savior. Holy Spirit, you are my helper. And heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, church. Let's celebrate with everybody that prayed that prayer today. If you prayed that prayer, welcome to the family of God. I want to encourage you to do two things. Number one, keep coming because you've begun the journey. And I want us as a spiritual family to help show you what it means to be a follower. I'm not talking about what you've seen in church maybe your whole life. I'm talking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. 
Then secondly, I want you to tell someone. Let somebody know the decision you made. You can do that by filling out the connect card in the pew pocket in front of you. You can do that by simply telling somebody in the church and asking them what's next. Our prayer partners are going to be standing right here up front at the end of our service. Come and find one of them and tell them, I prayed that prayer to be born again. Let them pray with you you, as you kickstart this brand new journey of following Jesus. And lastly, as you go, I want to encourage you with two more things. Go see Russell and Makisha out there if you're interested in one of our mission trips. Go find out more, more information about taking the gospel to the nations and what that looks like and what that means. You can be a teenager, an adult. I don't think we have an age cap on them. So by all means, go and find out. And then lastly, if you're interested in serving here at our church, right after our service, you can walk right across the the outside awning to our nursery building. And the first door to the left, we're doing our intro to serve. And your next step may be joining a team and connecting with other people in our church by serving in our church. If that's you, come learn what all the different areas that you can connect with and serve. And you can do that immediately. You can do that immediately after our service. Let me pray for you today. Can y'all stand to your feet? How many of you are glad you came to church today? Good. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for your people, your children, Jesus, the people of your flock. I pray you bless them. I pray you make your face shine on them. I pray you bless them, God, and they're going out and they're coming in. And that everything that they put their hands to, God, would prosper for the sake of the kingdom and for their good. And as a church, I pray, God, that we would be a pure church who walks in the fear of the Lord. We would be a persistent church, even in the face of challenges. And we'd be a powerful church, full of the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen.